So I was asked, this was a, a great honor for me, I was asked this week to teach a class on preaching for, for our denomination. Now I know some of you are thinking, John, you should have been in the class on preaching for our denomination. And the truth is I was actually signing, this is a true story, I was actually signing up for the class when they emailed me and told me I'd be teaching it. So I said, okay, I'll give it my best shot. And uh, went and uh, did a, a little talk for, for about 16, 18 guys that, that were trying to be better communicators. And one of the things we discussed was how we choose what we're gonna talk about at Mendham. Like, what filter do we run it through? You know, it's, it's hard if, you're not, if you don't have some plan. These Sundays come with great regularity. And uh, so the thought was, like, how do you guys know what to talk about? And we went through our model, you know, how we disciple heart, shape, mind, soul. We talked about those things. I tell you all that because there's something going on in our church, in our culture, um, that has made me, in the many years I've been up here now, never more certain that we needed to talk about something. Uh, and I've never received more confirmation about this, even from a friend walking into Starbucks this week. Um, that this is something that God wants his people to be thinking about and talking about. I've never been more certain of that uh, uh, going into a series than this one right now. We looked at it together, some friends of mine, in a smaller venue about eight years ago. But I need to look at it again. I need to study it again now. I've heard whisperings about the subject online. I, I've, I've seen them over the air. I, I, I hear my friends talking about them. But this series, maybe more than anything, was initiated by an email I got a few weeks ago from a friend. Here's what they wrote me. Because I'm going through a season of life right now where some things, there's some stuff up in the air, and I was getting scared. And so, so out of the blue, they wrote me, and they've been going through some similar things in their life. And they wrote me, hey, John, let me know if you have any time over the next week or so to talk. God has revealed some big things to me during the, this course of struggle that I was familiar with that, that her family was going through. And she said, I'm learning a lot about my relationship with fear. Hmm. So my ears pricked up. She said, it occurred to me that in church I sing, quote, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. We sing that song here a lot. She said, I sing it with all my heart, but I think my truth that I, sh my truth that I should be singing is, I'm completely a slave to fear. I've forgotten I'm a child of God. She wrote, in 2017, I'm committed to surrendering my mind and my body and my spirit to the Lord because it's all so connected and my fear causes my anxiety and my anxiety causes my physical pain. I, I want to be able to say I'm no longer a slave to fear and I want to mean it. And so I'm going to launch us off for the next bunch of weeks on this topic with two questions, one of which we're going to answer today and then the next one we're going to answer over the coming few weeks. So here's the first question. If you had to guess... What do you think the most common command in the Bible is? The most frequent instruction, if God were to give a frequent instruction to humanity, to the human race, what do you think he would say over and over? Now, if you don't get anything more out of today, I want you to get this, okay? Because this has been resonating in my heart for eight years since I taught through it eight years ago. And just so you know, I couldn't find any of those sermons, so I had to start from scratch. The most common command in all of the scriptures is not be more loving, although, of course, that's right at the core of, of God's will for us. A lot of writers of the spiritual life talk about our struggle with pride. Uh, that's at the heart of our sin problem, of our human fallenness. But the most common command, it doesn't have to do with fighting pride or cultivating humanity. 
Guys, it, it, the most common command in the scripture doesn't have anything to do with sexual integrity. It doesn't have anything to do with walking in truth. Those are all real concerns, okay, that God does have something to say about. But the most common command by far in all of the Bible is two words. Fear not. I'll give you some perspective on this. The gospel actually lists 125 Christ-issued commands, imperatives. Of these, 21 of the 125 urge us, don't be afraid, do not fear. Perspective, the second most common uh, command appears eight times. 20, 21 to eight. I mean, if quantity is any indicator, Jesus takes our fears, our struggle with fear, seriously. Don't be afraid. So, so, Here's my question. Why am I so afraid? I mean, if you, if you read the email I sent you this week, you know, the news is out there. North Korea, right? They're right on the verge of an interballistic nuclear missile. It looks like the old Russian bear is on the prowl again. The stock bubble, you know, it's over 20,000. It seems like it's ready to burst at some point. Technology is robbing all of my friends' jobs. The planet is warming. The economy might be cooling. We're, we're afraid of all of these things. We, we fear being sued, finishing last, going broke. We worry endlessly about the mole on our back, the new neighbor, uh, the sound of the clock as it kind of ticks us closer to the end. Why am I so afraid? Why, why am I so afraid? I mean, have you seen what's going on in our world, in our country, with my job, my health, my house? Why am I so afraid? I mean, what if my husband leaves me? What if my wife cheats on me? What if my boss fires me? What if something happened to my kids? I mean, why am I so afraid? School shootings, mall shootings, club shootings. You can't be safe anywhere. And, and, and maybe, maybe, just perhaps, this is why, listen to this. The average child today, parents, your kid, the average child today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Am I afraid? I mean, excuse the language, you're damn right I'm afraid. Half the time I'm scared to death. Now, if that resonates with you, you're not alone. The New York Times, just this summer, uh, in August, in an article entitled The 50 States of Anxiety, reported over the past eight years, Google search rates for anxiety have more than doubled. They're higher this year than they have been in any year since Google searched, uh, since Google was first created. In 2016, the, it has topped, their top searches uh, were for driving, it, let me make sure, I, I want to quote this statistic correctly. So far, 2016 has been the top year for searching driving anxiety, travel anxiety, separation anxiety, anxiety at work, anxiety at school, and anxiety at home. American anxieties are up 150% compared with 2004. So why are you so afraid? See, it's not just the cute title of a series. It actually was a question from somebody a lot brighter than me. His name was Jesus. To a people much like us, caught in a storm. Now, at first blush, when you understand the storm that we're in, you might look at Jesus and go, you can't be serious, right? 
I mean, it's kind of like one swimmer asking another swimmer, how'd you get so wet? I mean, but Jesus, when he asks the question, he doesn't ask it with like a wry smile. He asks it earnestly. So, so are the men to whom he asks the question, just like us, concerned and afraid. Let me show you the story. It's their story, but metaphorically, it's kind of ours too. There was a real uh, fisherman whose name was Matthew, and he started following Jesus. This is a historical account. This is the, one of the most documentable things of the time period. This actually happened, okay? There's, there's a man named Matthew, and, and he is a man of imperfect faith, which makes him like me and you. And here's, here's the story that he writes in a book in the Bible called Matthew chapter 8. He says, Jesus got into a boat, and his followers went with him. And check out the writing here. A great storm. I want you to look at that. That's how Matthew writes it down. Of course, that's the translation of what Matthew wrote into English. A great storm arose on the lake so that the waves covered the boat. If you know this story, raise your hand. Raise your hand high so I can see. See, here's the problem. The problem is you know the story. It's not that you know it. That's good. It means you, you know some of the word of God. You've spent some time in the scripture. But there's only one problem sometimes. When, when stories become familiar, familiarity can sometimes lead to the domestication of the story. It loses its teeth. You might know the story, but here's the question. Have you entered it? Have you entered the story? Have you entered their storm? Let me explain. You might not know this. In trying to describe what was going on on that boat, this Matthew, he doesn't actually speak of just rough seas. Uh, our translation does not merely do justice to what is happening on that boat. It's not merely a great storm. Matthew, to his first century writers, he's able to convey something that our English version just misses. Here's what he says. In the original language, he says, a great seismos arose on the lake. A great seismos arose on the lake. Max Licato, in his brilliant book, Fearless, a book that you'll hear me referencing throughout this series, the term, he says, seismos, still occupies a pretty big spot in our vernacular. You know this term. Seismologists study earthquakes. A seismograph measures them. And so here's Matthew, along with a crew of recent recruits. He's feeling a seismos in the earth and one in his soul. Now, I want you to understand how big this is, okay? perspective again. Matthew, in all, and you know so many of Matthew's stories, okay, he only uses this word three times, this seismos word, in all of his writing. Three times he uses the word. One is when Jesus dies on Calvary on the cross, and he says, the earth shook. There was a seismos on the earth. Again, at Jesus' resurrection, when the graveyard tremored, there was a moment of seismos there. And apparently, the stilled storm on the sea shares equal billing in Jesus' great victories. There was the defeating of guilt and shame on the cross. There was the defeating of death on the tomb. And now there is the defeating of fear on the sea. That's how important this is. It's that big a deal. Sudden fear. Sudden fear. I know all fear isn't sudden, but the story is kind of relating to sudden fear. There's an older version of the story that translates this way. Suddenly, a great tempest arose on the sea. We all know about fears that come on suddenly. I can get you uh, anybody, you want to you remember what it feels like? When's the last time your phone rang at 2 a.m.? 
sudden fear. The swerving car, the unexpected call into the boss's office. You ever hear a, a knock on the door, there's a policeman standing there? Sudden fear. And there's so much, there's so much irony in here for, for those of us that are trying to follow Jesus. Uh, Darren, if you put that verse back up, Jesus got into the boat and his followers went with him. A great storm arose on the lake. Check this out, because this is not the bill of goods. So many of us got sold when we started following Jesus. It says Jesus got in a boat, his followers, they followed, and then a beautiful rainbow flashed across the sky to celebrate their faith-filled decisions. <laughs> Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed, and Jesus began taking prayer requests. Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly Gopher and Isaac and Julie, the cruise director, started serving drinks. <laughs> this is not what it says. It might be that you were led to believe at one time in your life in regard to following Jesus, that that's what happens. But here is what it says. Jesus got in the boat, his followers went with him, his followers who left family and jobs and security behind, and a great storm arose. Breaking news, friends, getting on board with Christ can mean getting soaked with Christ. Disciples are not guaranteed smooth sailing. It was the captain himself who said, in this world you will, not might, not may, not could, you will have trouble. Christ followers get disease, they bury children, they battle addictions, and as a result of all of those things, we face fear. It's not the absence of storms in our lives. See, this is where the church gets messed up. It's not the absence of storms in our lives that set us apart. It's who we discover in the bow of the boat in the storm that sets us apart. Here's what Jesus says. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but have good courage. Don't be afraid because I have overcome the world. You want to know what overcoming the world looks like in that situation? A great storm arose on the lake. And I, you know, again, but, I love when Paul uses but. It's another just giant big but. I know that sounds funny, but you should get used to thinking that when you see these buts. This is a big but. But, Jesus is sleeping. Jesus is asleep. Now what's amazing here, now this is so true, okay? What's amazing here is Jesus is calm, does not translate to the disciples. Nobody goes, oh, see, Jesus is asleep. I'm going to go. You would think you might run and grab and hold him tight and say, okay, if he's going to be, God's with him, I'm going to hold on to him. This is when the sudden fear comes in. You would think that our natural inclination would be to run and grab hold of Jesus, grab onto him tightly, believing he is who he said he is. But that's not what fear does. This is why it's so dangerous. You ever been in that storm, a bad one, and it just seems like Jesus is nowhere to be found? Like he's asleep? I had some difficult things going on in my life a few weeks ago when I was driving home from, from, from the source of this frustration. And I was in the car and I was banging on my dashboard. Where are you? Where are you? Do you see what's going on down here? 
This is what I want you to see. The reason that this is the number one command of the scriptures, not all the other stuff that we think that we should be telling people all the time. The, the, the reason this is the number one fear, to not fear, is, is because fear has terrible consequences for us. And this is the first consequence, and it's a big one. Fear erodes our confidence in God, but not just our confidence in his existence, but our confidence in his character. Fear erodes your confidence, not just in his existence, but in his character. You ever felt that? If you're supposed to be so good, if you're supposed to be all-knowing, if you're supposed to be all-loving, what are you doing sleeping right now? Let me show you. Let me take you back to the story as Mark tells it in, in chapter 4. He says, Jesus was in the start and sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, Look at their question. Don't you care if we drown? That's what fear does. They don't ask Jesus about his strength. Jesus, can you still the storm? They don't ask Jesus about his knowledge. Jesus, you're aware of the storm. They don't say to Jesus, have you had any experience with the storms? But they raise doubts about his character. Hey, Jesus, do you care? Do you even care? I've, I've had this. I've felt this. This is what fear does. It does it to your pastor. Fear will corrode your confidence in God's goodness. Not only that, fear has a way of completely dreadening our recall. If you know any of the stories of the Bible, every time God shows up in kind of powerful ways, he asks his people to, to put a marker there because he knows that sometimes in life you're going to need to look back and remember that God did something there. What happens is in our lives, when fear comes in, it just wipes out our memories of where God has been and what he's been up to in our lives. Let me show you, just before, in this same chapter in Matthew, just before they had gotten in the boat, they had seen him heal all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of diseases. Just before getting in the boat, they had seen him heal a leper with a touch of his hand and a servant with a command. Just before getting in the boat, they had seen demons scatter like bats out of a cave. Just before they got in the boat, five minutes later. Do you even care? You would think somebody would mention his track record or his resume, his accomplishments. But fear creates this spiritual amnesia for us so we forget about how good he is and what he really has done. And now, here's where it gets really scary, okay? This is why it's the number one command. Fear is so dangerous. The Bible is so replete with warnings about it because when fear begins to shape your life, then safety becomes your God. And you'll do anything to get at it. When fear begins to shape your life, then safety becomes your God and you will do anything to attain it. What happens is you begin to abandon God's goodness and, it, and his promises and you embrace a new God, a new idol, a, not one of, of, of carved wood or stone, but a new idol nonetheless, and it's called safety. See, church, as you know, it's not a matter we all worship, everyone worships. It's not a matter of if you will worship. It's a matter of what you will worship, and when fear rules your life, you will begin to worship safety. But the truth is, can the safety lover ever do anything great? Can the risk averse accomplish noble deeds for God or for others? 
Can the fear-filled person love deeply? You want to know what, what might be at the root cause of some of the relational distance in our marriages and in our relationships with our kids? Fear. Because if I loved you with all abandon, what would happen if it didn't work out and you left me? The fear-filled cannot love deeply. Love is risky. They cannot give to the poor because benevolence doesn't guarantee a return. The fear-filled cannot dream wildly. What if their dreams didn't come true? The worship of safety emasculates greatness. No wonder Jesus, because he loves you and cares for you and created you with purpose and intent to serve him, no wonder Jesus wages a war against fear. Over and over in the Bible, it's fear that threatens to keep people from trusting and obeying God. Over and over in the scripture, there are two kinds of mindsets, two kinds of possibilities for life laid out for the human race. One is based on fear. One is based on faith. You can trust God. You can trust his goodness and his power. He's sufficient for your life. You can live with a sense of relaxed confidence in him. That's the mindset of faith. Or you can live with a mindset of fear. You see this as soon as the fall takes place in the garden, right? I'm on my own. I'm on my own. Nobody's, nobody's coming for me. Nobody's going to help me. Unless I'm real careful and cautious, something really bad might happen to me and I, I might not be able to handle it. And when you believe that way, here's what happens. You get deluded into thinking. I get deluded into thinking that the problem is the circumstance. It's the circumstance that made me scared, but it's not the circumstance that produces the fear. Here's how I know, because historically the Bible just over and over shows two different sets of people who face the exact same storm, the exact same difficulty, the exact same circumstance, and they live very different lives. Moses sends 12 scouts out to explore the promised land. Ten of them come back and say, oh man, the land is great. It's flowing with milk and honey. But the enemies over there, they're really big and powerful. We'll never be able to overcome them. We, we will, God will never be able to help us here. We should just go back. But two of the scouts, Joshua and Caleb, look at the same promised land. They look at the same enemies and they go, you know, we should go forward into that land. Because I think God's going to give it to us, just like he said, with his help. You know the story. There's a young shepherd boy named David. He's bringing supplies to his brothers who are, who are serving in the army. And they, he sees what they see, uh, this giant named Goliath, who's out there mocking the armies and mocking God all day long. All the soldiers see him. They're too terrified to challenge him. David sees the same thing, same storm, same problem, and he goes in with a slingshot. See, it's not the circumstance that causes the fear. Jesus and his disciples are in the boat one day. The storm comes up. The disciples are scared. They're screaming in panic. Jesus is asleep. In all of these stories, and many like them, there are two sets of people. They face the same situation. They scout the same promised land. They look at the same enemy. They endure the same storm. Some respond with peace. Some respond with panic. What's the difference? It's not the situation. It's not the circumstances. It's their understanding of who God is. It's their mindset. One writer put it this way. He said, I would say it's a single word, perspective. The most important determinant of whether you're going to live in faith or feel fear is your perspective. Your perspective makes all the difference. Perspective determines how we respond to things. So I read this letter this week. Relative to perspective, it was from a college girl that she sent home to her parents. Anybody have, ever get, a, we don't get letters anymore, we get emails. Um, Maybe texts. 
So she, she wrote home to her mom and dad, dear mom and dad, I have so much to tell you. Because of the fire set off by the student riots, I experienced temporary lung damage. And I, I had to go to the hospital. But while I was there, I fell in love with an orderly and we've moved in together. I dropped out of school when I found out I was pregnant. He got fired because of his drinking, so we're going to move to Alaska where we might get married after the birth of the baby. Signed, your loving daughter. P.S. None of that really happened, but I did flunk my chemistry class and I wanted you to keep it in perspective. <laughs> See, the power of perspective. Perspective is a sense of proportion, problem, God. Problem, resource. It's the ability to sort out what's a big deal and what's not. And unhealthy fear is the product of, a, of an off-kilter sense of perspective of who God is, who you are to him. The single most common command in all the Bible is the command not to live that way. Don't live like this. Live in the mindset of faith, not in the mindset of fear. Fear erodes our confidence in God. It makes us question his character. Fear makes us forget what he's done. And most importantly, it causes us to break God's first and primary command. Many of you would go, well, I look at the Ten Commandments. I think I keep them pretty well. The first commandment was, I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other God other than me. Or as Jesus restated it, the great command is, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And fear turns us into idolaters. And safety becomes our God. Here's what I know about every God that exists other than the one true God. Every God that our hearts start to follow after will always enslave you. It will turn you into a slave. Jesus comes to set you free. We keep returning to the chain gang of another God. The God of safety will paralyze you. He'll hold you in your place. He'll make you dance and perform for him. You will literally be stuck in place, unable to move in your job, in your relationships, towards your hopes and dreams. You will cash them in at the altar of the God of safety. We do it all the time. And the God of safety, it turns out, just like every other false god, came only to kill your dreams, take your life, and steal your eternities. That's why fear is so important. That's why it's the number one command. Now, I don't know if you have family sayings around your house. We have some at ours. I've told you them over the years. You know, I wake the kids up. You need to get up today because today could be the best day ever. And so they're sick of that one. And I've told them when they leave for school in the morning, you need to, you know, you need to remember, you know, remember the name. Your grandfather worked in a scissor factory his whole life to bring honor to that name. Remember the name. We have other things. Uh, you know, when, when they would say something cutting or biting to one another, I would say, well, is that encouraging? You know, and so that was just kind of a thing. And so, you know, they would just look at me and be like, yeah, I know. Is that encouraging? And we used to play a game in the diner when the kids were young. You know, you go to church after church. We go to the diner. You're trying to kill some time and you got young kids. And so we created a little game called Blood or No Blood. And so we would say to the kids, we'd name a miscellaneous aunt or uncle and say, Blood or No Blood. And they would sit there for a while trying to figure out, is this a blood relative or is this related by marriage? And, you know, when the kids are young, it takes them quite a long time. It's so much fun and they loved it. And they got older, and so the game kind of lost some of its charm. So we started a new game recently in the diner, which is called um, I Name the Relative, You Name Their Problem. <laughs> I see a relative shaking her head. Um, 
We don't do that. My sister, I told that joke to my sister, and my sister's like, you're so mean. <laughs> we don't do that. But we would play a game called Kingdom or Non-Kingdom. Right? We would talk about something, and I'd say, OK, you know, I'd give an example. I'd say, is that a kingdom example, an example of what, we, what it's like in the kingdom of God or what it's like in the kingdom of the world? So we have these sayings, kingdom or non-kingdom, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. You know, I think if you followed Jesus around for three years, he had some family sayings. I think if they got together after it was all over at the family reunion, they would have looked back and they would have said one thing. Do you remember what he kept saying? Let me just give you a, a little piece of what he kept saying. Starting in Matthew 10. So don't be afraid. You're worth much more than many sparrows. Matthew 9. Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Matthew 6. Don't worry about everyday life, whether you have enough. Luke 8. Don't be afraid. Just believe in your daughter will be well. Matthew 14. It's all right. I'm here. Don't be afraid. Matthew 10. Do not fear those who will kill the body but cannot fill the soul. Luke 12. Do not fear, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. John 14, don't be troubled. You trust God, trust me. I'm going to come for you so that you'll always be with me where I am. John 14, do not be troubled or afraid. Luke 24, why are you frightened? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Matthew 24, you'll hear, does this sound familiar? You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Matthew 17, Jesus came and touched them and said, arise. Don't be afraid. God always calls people to trust him. He says to Abraham, leave your home, go with your wife Sarah, and as an old man you're going to give birth to a son and he's going to become the father of a nation. But you're going to have to leave everything familiar and comfortable or you're going to have to trust me. God says to Moses, go confront the most powerful man in the world. Tell him to let my people go. I'm going to start a new community. It's going to give hope to the world. You're going to be the beginning of it. But you've got to trust me. God says to Daniel, I want you to defy the king. I want you to pray even though there's a rule against it. I want you to go into the lion's den. I'm going to shut their mouths. But you're going to have to trust me. Friends, that, this is a good inspirational talk, but friends that, that would say with me that I believe Jesus is who he said he is, that he, that he is the most, that his life, death, and resurrection are the most provable events in the history of that time period, more provable than Plato's writings. Okay, this is, this is a true story. If you believe that, here's what you need to know. God did not send his only begotten son in the world to pursue you, to woo you, to love you, to die for you, to reconcile you back to himself in order for you and I to live lives full of fear and dread and doubt and regret enslaved to another God called safety. That's the truth of the gospel. You know the Apostle Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament. He was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he had lots of reasons to doubt and fear. Here's how he summed it up. He says, if God is for us, who could be against us? He, just like I said, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, along with him graciously, and how will he not give us all things? Paul says, who could separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he goes back to an old writing. He says, for your sake we faith death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't get scared. In all things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced, I can tell you this, I, I, I've been living long enough, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to become convinced 
I'm getting towards convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Perspective. If God is for you, why are you so scared? You don't have to go through life with fear. Do you know the gift you've been given? You can go through life without being afraid. You are literally in the hand of God. I, I came across a modern parable that shows this better than I can describe it. I'm going I'm to close with letting you watch it. It's, it's a documentary from the 80s, so it's kind of back there. It was, anybody remember the movie? It was just called simply The Bear. I'm showing my age here, but uh, nobody. Bueller. <laughs> So it was a movie called The Bear. It was actually fascinating. The reason it kind of resonated with people was it was like a nature film. There's no, there's no words. Um, it's a camera crew that literally follows um, a little bear cub. Now, in the story, and it's not a story, it's just real life, the camera following it. In, in, the, in the story of this bear cub, the mom dies in an accident early on in the movie. And if you're watching, it becomes apparent quickly that the bear, because it's so little, it's not going to make it on its own. But then, if you're watching it, much to your surprise, and certainly the bear's surprise, this giant big daddy bear, Kodiak bear, comes along and, and adopts this little cub. And they begin to do life together. And he teaches the little bear cub how to live, how to grub for insects, how to fish in the stream. And so this little cub, it begins to do everything he sees his, his dad doing. But one day, hear me on this now, one day he gets separated from his dad. And he starts to think, fear comes in, and he starts to think, I'm on my own. You see, there's a mountain lion that's been tracking this bear since his mom died. Just waiting for this moment. And into that little bear's life comes the storm. Into that little bear's life comes fear. Into that little bear's life... He tries to be like his dad. Into that little bear's life comes the lesson that although you might not always see him, you might not always feel him, it turns out your father is with you all along. You have nothing to fear. Check this out.
slave to fear. I'm a child of God. Would you stand and close? We're going to sing it as we kind of just affirm it to each other. <laughs> <laughs>